Last week, our series entitled, I Met Jesus, introduced us to a very religious and politically powerful man. His name was Nicodemus. He was an aristocrat. He had a pedigree uh, that few could uh, trump. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. This was a guy who had religious connections. He had political connections. He was a mover and shaker in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus meets him one night and says to him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And as we saw last week, the reason that he said this to her or to him is that he knew what Nicodemus needed. The man who had the resume was trusting in his resume to have a relationship with God. And basically by telling him, you need to be born again, what he was saying to him is, salvation does not come from you. Salvation is not something that you do. Salvation comes from God and him alone. Today we are introduced to a woman who couldn't be any more different than Nicodemus. Nicodemus was powerful. This woman was not. Nicodemus had a sterling reputation. This woman uh, did not. Nicodemus was the finest that the Jewish religion had to offer. This woman was an embarrassment to everybody that knew her. These two people couldn't be any more different. The one thing that they had in common was that both of them had great need. In her story, we find in John chapter 4, in a very long section of scripture, 45 verses, which we are not going to read all 45 verses. It would almost take the whole message to read all 45 verses. We're not going to be doing that. But our goal here is to basically put our feet in her sandals and to try to understand what it was like for her when she met Christ and the difference that that meeting meant in her life. And like Nicodemus, this is one of these random moments in life. She had no idea what was about to happen to her. And I just have to believe that perhaps today this might be a random moment for you. And who knows how God might use his living word in your life today through the story of the woman at the well. We pick up the story here in John 4, verse 1. It says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parentheses, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, we'll stop right there. And let's just get ourselves oriented to uh, what's going on here. Here we have a map of of, uh, Israel and Judea at the time. And it's kind of turned on its side a little bit. You can see, you can see, and I don't know if you can see this dot here, but you see the Dead Sea right here. Here you have the, the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River flows between the two. The Great Sea is now known as the Mediterranean Sea over here. So Jesus has been down in this area here, 
And he wants to go back up to this area here. So what do you do? Well, in that day, they basically had two options. The first option was to come all the way down here to Jericho and to walk the Jordan uh, River Valley all the way up here and then to kind of come over here, which on the map doesn't look like it's that far. And if you were looking on MapQuest, you would think, ah, go one way or the other. They were walking. So every mile mattered, right? And if you went down in here, this area, you were more likely to to rub you know, interact with the Gentiles, which for a Jew was a very unsavory uh, possibility. The other option, and, and those of you that are smarter thinking, boy, the shortest distance between two points is a line. That's right. And so you're thinking, well, if you're right here and you want to get to right here, why wouldn't you just go there? Well, you see here now is part of the problem. In order to do that, you had to go through this area known as Samaria. And so we need to talk a little bit about Samaria and why this is not something typically that was looked forward to either. In fact, let's talk about why the Jews hated the Samaritans and why the feelings were mutual. The story of this goes all the way back to uh, the Old Testament. And if you recall, uh, there were three kings that ruled over the, the, the undivided uh, Israel. You had Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon comes King Rehoboam. And under King Rehoboam, the ten tribes of the north split off from the two tribes in the south. And they constitute their own nation, Israel. And their capital was Samaria. And what happened in the story, if you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, is that those ten tribes in the north, it's basically the story of how they were over and over and over again, they were in rebellion against God, they were in idolatry against God, God would send prophets to them and all the rest, they didn't care, they kept shaking their fist at God, and finally what happened to them is what God said would happen to them if they did not repent. And God sent the Assyrians... Okay, one of the most nasty peoples of all time into those 10 tribes in the year 722 BC. And they were taken into captivity. These Assyrians had a very brilliant but very cruel policy when they would conquer uh, a nation. Basically what they would do is they would take a huge percentage of the population and they would resettle them somewhere else in the kingdom. And then they would bring people from other parts of the kingdom into that area. And those people would settle in there. And the reason for this is is that the Assyrians knew that by doing that, these people that have moved into the area, the people that were already there, they would end up intermarrying and, and all the rest. And it would dilute the culture and the language and the national identity of the, that nation that they had conquered which would then make it very difficult for them to ever reconstitute themselves and to rise up against the Assyrians. A brilliant plan, don't you think? Yes, indeed. And so what happened when the Assyrians came in 722, they took all these people out, they brought all these people in, and sure enough, these Jews who had were remaining there intermarried and and their cultures and language and religions and all the rest sort of got all diluted in there and that area became known as the area of Samaria area of Samaria (laughs) 
So, the fruit of this then is something that we're kind of used to. I mean, here we are in America. America's been a melting pot since uh, it began. You talk to somebody, you say, hey, what's your, what's your ethnic background? Well, I'm 20%, you know, Irish, and I'm, I'm 30% uh, English, and I'm uh, 15% this, and then I'm another 75% that, and you're kind of adding it up, and you're going, how does that work? I don't know, but it's somehow in America it works. We're just a melting pot. Everybody's, not everybody, uh, but most people are kind of a mixture of this, that, and the other. doesn't bother us. But in this uh, area, with a group of people whose whole identity was in the covenantal promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their descendants, for that people group to intermarry, intermingle, and for that to be diluted was to the 100% Jewish blood people an abomination. And it created then this very strong animosity against the leftovers from the Assyrian captivity. In fact, we know from history that it led to things like this. In the year 400 BC, the Samaritans built a rival temple in Samaria so they didn't have to go to Jerusalem and to worship. Well, guess what? The Jews didn't think that was such a good idea to have another temple. And so they went and they destroyed it. So you see... They just, they didn't, they weren't sending Christmas cards to one another. This was not friendly relations between these two groups. In fact, within a generation of, of the time of Jesus, the Jewish leaders would make it unlawful for a Jewish man to talk to, even speak to, a Samaritan woman because they were, quote, menstruants from the cradle. Meaning, spiritually unclean from birth. Even a Samaritan child off limits. So Jews did not like the Samaritans. The feelings were mutual between the Samaritans and uh, the Jews. They were sick and tired of the Jews thinking that they had, uh, they were superior. Their way was better. They were the, the, the purebreds and the Samaritans were the half breeds and all the rest. And you just see how generation after generation, these people did not like each other. You also see why it was such a scandalous story one day when Jesus told about a Jewish man who was beaten up along the road. And a couple of religious leaders came, ignored the man, went on their way. But a Samaritan came and uh, took care of the man, paid his bill, and the story becomes known as the parable of the good Samaritan. And to a, to a, to a Jewish person, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. It's kind of like cats. The only good cat is a... You know what I'm saying? So that's the way that they felt towards one another. Now let's just pause for a moment and think about this. Because here we live in northwest Indiana. One of the great melting pots of our entire country. A place where religious, uh, ethnic... Racial prejudices of all sorts kind of simmer under the surface. Do you suppose that maybe the story of the woman at the well might have something particularly relevant to say to a community that is and feels the tensions of these similar kinds of differences? Indeed, I think it does. And I hope God blesses it. And in some small way, this part of the community can have a ripple into the rest of it. I think God can do that in one message. I hope he does today.
We pick up the story, verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. All right, so here we have the famous Jacob's well, the well that Jacob uh, dug centuries before. It's about noon, so Jesus has been walking for what? Let's say five, six hours. And he's thirsty, right? That's what happens when you're walking and you're thirsty. Some of you are going to do the 2K fun walk. And you're going to get to the end of it, you're like, give me something to drink, I'm dying. You've been walking for 10 minutes. (laughs) I know. (sighs) I think people in this day, when they walked everywhere, would just think we're total wimps uh, these days. So it's not hard to see how Jesus, walking for several hours, could find himself a wee bit thirsty and a little bit tired. And by the way, we see in this something important to realize, that the gospel writers write into the story the humanity of Jesus. We celebrate his deity, we celebrate the fact that he is the son of God, but he is also completely and 100% man, just like us. And we see him just like us, tired and thirsty and in need. Now for the scandalous moment. Here we pick it up, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Parentheses, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Stop there. In this one statement, we have scandal. We have something unsavory, something completely inappropriate by the cultural norms of the day. And the Samaritan woman recognizes that by the simple question that Jesus asks her, give me a drink. So let's just review all of the reasons that Jesus should never have said to her, give me a drink. First of all, her ethnicity. We've covered this already. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan woman. Secondly, her gender. He is a man. She is a woman. Now today, we men, women, we kind of, you know, we'll talk and be social and all the rest. Was not the case back in the first century. Men and women did not talk with each other as freely as we kind of will uh, today. In fact, uh, Jewish men in the first century, would avoid talking even to their wives in public. Which, (laughs) when I walk around uh, the mall, it seems to me that there are many apparently Jewish husbands there. (laughs) Her gender, her ethnicity, his weariness. He's tired. I don't know about you. When I get tired, I get a little less talkative. He's tired. He's hungry. He is uh, thirsty. He's alone. Now, I don't know about you again, but let's just be honest. Isn't it a little easier to be selfish when there's nobody there to see that you're being selfish? I.e., when you're, you know, there's no eyes watching you when you're checking out at the grocery store or when somebody cuts you off in the road uh, and, and think of, like that, you wouldn't say that if Pastor Steve was sitting next to you, you'd be like, oh, praise God, you know, and, uh, 
When you're alone, it's a different story. Jesus had all kinds of reasons that he did not need to engage this woman in any kind of conversation. And yet he says to her, give me a drink. And the big one is the focus now, beginning in verse 10. And that is her lifestyle and her character. Here's what it says. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus answered, "Uh, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And this to me is one of these just lines in the Bible. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And here now we are introduced to the real character of this woman. Five husbands, five failures. In a culture where divorce was much less common than in our culture today. To have five husbands and five divorces was like beyond belief. Didn't happen. On top of that, Jesus says, the man that you now have is not your husband. The man that you're sleeping with now is not your husband. In other words, this woman had five marriages, five failures, and now she's just abandoned the whole concept of marriage altogether, and she's with a man. And if you think about what likely her age would be in the story, this husband, or this man that she's, that Jesus is talking about, probably is somebody else's husband. And so are you getting the idea of the kind of woman we're talking about here? Last night did, do you? Yeah. And the woman's response is classic. Only a prophet could know that. And you see, she recognized Jesus was an out-of-towner. Maybe a local person possibly had heard a little bit of the scuttlebutt around the town that maybe, you know, they knew about the divorces and maybe she's kind of with this guy over here. Maybe somebody could know that. But a Jew from out of town who happens to be sitting at the well, knowing all of that stuff, only a prophet could possibly know that. And we find here the woman doing what so often people do. Here Jesus now has brought up the ethical character of her life and the sexual activity of her life. And her very next comment is basically this. Well, enough about me. Let's talk doctrine. In other words, let's change this subject. I don't like where it's going. And she brings up 
the ancient doctrinal differences of between the Samaritans and the Jews. We're not going to read that. And Jesus here, basically what he does is he winsomely turns the red herring doctrinal debate back to the point of this woman's personal need. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Poignant, very poignant sentence. Now remember Nicodemus. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. We would expect, we're just one chapter later. That was chapter three. Here we are in chapter four. We would expect that when the woman meets him at the well, okay, Jesus, roll out the line. It's the line that you're famous for. It's what you said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Come on now, bring it out. Study it last week. We're all over it. We understand what it means. Throw the spiritual resume away. I can't earn my way to God. Tell the woman that. He doesn't tell the woman that. Because what Nicodemus needed in that moment from from Jesus' perspective, was a different kind of need than what this woman had. Nicodemus was trying to earn his salvation. He was thinking that his righteousness would merit favor with God. This woman had no delusion of self-righteousness. She knew her story. She, she, she recognized her lack of moral and ethical behavior and obedience. She wasn't trying to earn her way to God. She knew she couldn't. And what he says to her is where her issues lied. Her issues were love and worship and acceptance. Her whole life had been a search for love and a proper worship and acceptance. And the God of her life was an idol. But the result of that for her was that her life was a life filled with deception and inward contradiction and shame and guilt. She, her life was a lie. This was a woman with secrets. Can you relate to that today? A woman with secrets? Things that she would just as well, nobody knew. And so Jesus says to her, you must worship in spirit and in truth. And what he did with this woman was essentially what he did with Nicodemus. And that is, she could not provide what God required. Her life was not truth. Her life was not authentic. Her life was a lie. And we see the brilliance of this because the woman, notice what she thinks about next. She doesn't begin to evaluate her life and go, well, I had a good year there and a bad year there and maybe that'll do good and maybe that'll... No, her next thought goes to the Old Testament promise of a Messiah. She recognized that she could not do what he has said here. And her hope went to the very place that Christ wanted it to go. To go to somebody who would come, who would set things aright. The Messiah, the Christ. And she says there, I know the Messiah is coming. I've heard about somebody who's going to come and set all things right again. And Jesus has her now exactly where she needs to be. 
She longs for a life free of guilt. She longs to be free from the shame of her past. And she's thinking about what? If that's ever going to happen, I need a savior. And I've heard about this one who's coming, the Messiah. And in that moment, the thirst in her heart, which that's the whole point of the living water thing. The thirst in her heart, the longing of her heart to be free from her guilt and to be free to live an authentic life was offered through the Messiah. And we find that the woman was not the only one at the well that day with a secret. Jesus unveils his secret now to her. I, who speak to you, am he. Isn't that cool? I just think that is so cool how Jesus, you know, Nicodemus, he's doing this thing. And with the woman at the well, he's doing this thing. And he brings her to her very inward heart level point of need. And her response now is dramatic. Look for verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now this must have been quite a scene. Imagine it with me. She's at the well. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Her, her brain's like, she, she leaves the water jar. She goes rushing back into the town square. Now realize this is a woman who has spent all her life on the fringes of society. This is a woman, everybody knew about her five husbands, everybody knew about her five divorces, maybe some of them knew about the one she was sleeping with now, but all of her life she was a, she was a woman with a scarlet letter. She was a woman who had the bad reputation. She was a woman that everywhere she went, people whispered behind her back. There she goes, we all know her story. Imagine the women in this town with a woman like this. Think of what her life had been. She comes rushing into the town. Everyone, 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 listen, listen, you got to hear me. And I imagine, you know, somebody over here going, oh, 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 look, it's the homewrecker. She's got something to say. Hey, the sleazy one in town, she's got, she's wanting to say something. And this woman now begins by saying, there's a man at the well. I just was talking to him. He told me everything I ever did. Now, this was remarkable. For a man to tell this woman everything she'd ever done because she was famous for being a woman who'd done quite a lot. And I rather imagine the people in the town thought to themselves, if there's a guy at the well who knows everything this woman has done, this is worth the walk. Let's head out to the well. I'd like to hear a little bit of that myself. I see some of the men in town who hear that that, uh, somebody's saying everything that this woman has done and they're thinking, I need to go hear this as well. A little nervous about that. They went out in mass to the well. And no doubt, beyond curiosity, there's a spiritual dimension to this uh, as well. This was a woman in town whose reputation was uh, the last, the, the, the kind of reputation and the kind of person who would be the last to be talking about the Christ. She says to them, is this not possibly the Christ? She didn't talk about the Christ. Women like that didn't talk about Messiah and Old Testament prophecy. They're not in the Bible studies. And yet here she is. It might be the Messiah. I can see the women in the town. They're saying things like this. Now what has gotten into her? Why is she talking religion all of a sudden? I got to go see what that's all about. Come on, girls. Let's go. 
And off they went. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You know what happened that day? There was a mass revival in the town of Sychar that day. Think of it. They all go out there. They're wanting to hear what this woman's done with her life. There's Jesus at the well. We don't know what he said. But the fruit of what he said to them led to him staying there for two days. And many of them believing. And of course, this ties into John's purpose statement for writing the book. In John uh, 20, he says, I'm writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And this woman basically becomes a missionary. She's going to be one of these people you meet in heaven, these interesting people in heaven. You're going to be walking in heaven and you're going to meet this woman. You're like, hey, where are you from? Well, I was first century. You're like, oh, that's cool. And then you're going to be like, well, like, where'd you live? You go, I, I live in a town called Sikar. Sikar. I don't remember that town. Yeah, yeah. Where are you from? I was northwest Indiana. Never heard of that either. <laughs> so, like, how did you, how did you meet, like, how did you come to know the gospel? Well, one day I was thirsty and I went out to the well. And all of a sudden you're going to be like, oh, you're the woman at the well. Yes. Pastor Steve did a sermon on you one day. <laughs> It was the best sermon I ever heard in my life. (laughs) Who would have thought that this woman of all the women in town would be the missionary that God would use to reach the town? And that's the story. What does it mean? What does it mean for us today? I have a few things I think it means. We talked about why Jesus shouldn't have talked to her. Let's spend a moment on why he did. And right now I'd like to ask you, as you think about a woman like this, or if you were to meet a woman like this, how would you feel towards her? Would you be appalled at her? Oh, I can't believe it. Would you ostracize her possibly? Or think to yourself, well, that's nobody that I want to get anywhere near. How would you look at this woman? And I think from one perspective, it's understandable. Her life, in a way, deserved the reputation that she had. But what is noteworthy in this story, Bethel, is that Jesus did not have that perspective, did he? What did Jesus do? He didn't see her as the town tramp. He didn't look at her in terms of her reputation. Jesus looked into her heart and what he saw in her heart was the same thing that he saw in the heart of the highly polished Nicodemus and that is that she needed him she needed a savior 
And he was willing to look past the ethnic barrier. He was willing to look past the gender barrier. He was willing to look past the cultural norms of the day. He was willing to go past her reputation, which of all people who knew it, it was Christ. He went past all of that and he saw her and talked to her like a real person for who she was. He understood that she had great need. In fact, think of, think of the inner life of this woman. As a woman, what, what does five divorces do to the heart of a woman? Five failures and the reputation that that produced in her town. What does sexual involvement with a man who will not commit to you do to a woman on the inside? Think of the years that she had spent everywhere she went, whispers about her, her past, her story. What does that do to a woman? Think of how important friendship is to a woman. Is it a coincidence that she went to the well alone? Or was that not just basically her life? No husband, no friends, and the man she's with is with her for all the wrong reasons. What did Jesus see when this Samaritan woman arrived? He saw her as a real person with real needs. And the language here is all about drinking water and all the rest. But you know what it was really about? Thirst. He knew she was thirsty. And she wasn't looking for water. She wasn't needing water out of the well that day. Her soul needed water. And Jesus spoke into that part of her heart. She needed a savior to believe in. And I think it's so important that we recognize that Jesus treated this woman with respect and with dignity as a person. And friends, in our life, every single person that we come across is an image bearer of God. Every person that we rub shoulders with is a soul that is going to spend eternity somewhere. And every person, no matter how hard they are, no matter what they've done in their life, no matter what their reputation is, deep down past all the exterior stuff that they put out there, is a soul that was made for God. And without God being there, they are thirsty. They are longing for a Savior. And that is true for the rich and the poor the educated and the uneducated, the outcasts and the marginalized of our culture and society, all of them worthy of our loving attention. Now, is that a word that's needed in a community like ours, where we are multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-racial, put all the multis you want to, Northwest Indiana is the melting pot of all of those things. I wonder, can we look at people that way too? And who might God be calling you to speak to as a person? I just think about this woman. How long has it been since anybody actually spoke to her like she was a real person? She was a reputation. She was a homewrecker. 
She was a, she was just a, a, a blight on society. And yet Jesus spoke to her for who she was. Is there a lesson for us in that? I think a big one. People are all the same. People need the Lord. And they're thirsty for that. And I think in our culture today, you know, you think about, think about our area, you know, the larger Chicagoland area. How do people expect to be treated by other people? We pretty much expect people to treat us badly. We spend our life being treated badly by people. It's a dog-eat-dog culture that we live in. I don't think it takes a whole lot of kindness and respect extended to people for it to feel to them like something radically different. And so I wonder, are you prepared to look past the color of somebody's skin? Are you prepared to look past the community that they live in? Are you prepared to look past the differences from you that this person may have educationally or morally or religion, spiritual or otherwise? Your neighbor, your coworker, the checkout lady at the grocery store. And to see them through the eyes of Christ as somebody who's thirsty and who God has called you to speak to. Oh, what a difference that can make. Amen? The last thing is what I call the I met Jesus effect. The I met Jesus effect. As this woman walks to the well that day, she was her old self. And we know from her story, her old self was basically a selfish self. She had lived her life kind of for what she wanted. Maybe, maybe two of the five divorces weren't entirely her fault, but it's hard to, it's hard to think that, you know, she was five for five, uh, not being her fault. I'm thinking maybe given her character, she might have been 0 for five. All of them her fault. Carrying in her heart the burden of what that means, living her life on the fringes, sneaking around, walking to the well alone. Her life was basically curved in on herself. Which is why what happens in verse 28, I think, is so surprising. Look again. The woman left her water jar and went into town. When a woman leaves her dishes, something big is going on. She leaves her water jar. And she rushes into the town. Now who's in the town? Who are these people in her town? These are all the people that her life had been pointing fingers at her. And laughing at her. And calling her names. And describing her in slanderous terms. Forcing her into the margins of uh, relationships and the culture of that town. All of these people who had not spoken to her like Jesus spoke to her. These very people, suddenly Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I gotta go. And she rushes into town, she becomes a missionary, and she's telling everyone, there's a man at the well who told me everything that I've ever done. Might he be the Christ? In other words, what we see in this woman is that in that moment, she stops thinking about who? Herself. And suddenly, after meeting Jesus, a heart for the very people who had mistreated her all of these years. 
And my dear friends, today, I think Jesus speaks through time and through the, 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 the word and the witness of, of the scriptures into this room. And he says to this room, I who speak to you am he. And what a transformation that can and will produce in our lives. With the thirst of our hearts, that soulish thirst that we have for something that is true and something that is real and something that I can live my life by. Again, this woman was a woman of shame. This was a woman, her whole life was a lie. She couldn't be authentic. She had secrets. People who have secrets are all the time hiding themselves inwardly. She'd lived her life this way. And she meets Jesus who says, you must worship in spirit and truth. The Messiah will come and make that right. I who speak to you am he. And suddenly there just bloomed in her heart the possibility of a life lived authentically. A life free of the lies and the shame of her past. And it just produced in her suddenly a desire to go and to minister, call it that, to the very people who had mistreated her all her life. And we see Jesus taking her down this path to the Messiah. She needed Christ. She needed a Savior. And the story ends with many people affirming the very same thing. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And that's the bottom line, folks. It's a great story. It's an intriguing story. There's history in it. There's culture in it. There's people and all the things in it. But at the bottom line, what this story is calling everyone in this room to is the same thing that this woman was saying in the town. Is this the Christ? Is he your Christ? Is he your Messiah? Are you looking to be free of the life of shame? A life of lies and contradictions. A life where I cannot be who I am because I've got to hide what I've done. Jesus offered to the woman at the well the same thing that he offers to everybody who will believe. He died for our sins. He died for our shame. He paid the penalty before God. And the fruit of believing in him is living water. Now a well springing out inside of me. A life lived authentically in spirit and in truth obediently in other words something radically different than a selfish life produces that offer is made to you today just as surely as if you were sitting there at the well that day if you will believe if you will make him your messiah make jesus your savior by trusting and believing in what he did in dying for the very shame that you're feeling today the things that you have done your past christ died for those And if you will put your trust and your faith in him, he wipes the conscience clean. And there is a new life in Christ. And that offer is made to all of us. We see it in the woman, the change that it brought. We see it around here. New life. New life. Transformation. A new reality authenticity no more need for lies no need for secrets rather a life of worship in spirit and in truth he makes that offer today through the experience of the woman at the well father I pray that you would 
take a story that all of us can relate to, to one degree or another. Lord, all of us have things in our story, in our life, that we would die of embarrassment if it was made public today. All of us know the, 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 the need, we feel the need at times to hide ourselves. And Lord, I pray that today, while we maybe cannot relate to the highly polished and highly influential Nicodemus, that we might relate to the woman at the well who came to the well with a soul that was thirsty. Father, I pray that through Christ you might satisfy the longings of our hearts. I pray that Jesus would be to us living water. I pray that you would through him satisfy the thirst, quench the desire, and that he might be our sole satisfaction. I pray, Lord, over our church that we might emulate the example of Christ that we see here. A willingness to see people as people, to see people the way that you see us. Not for the outward charade, not for the image that we portray, but for who we are on the heart level. And on that level, we are all the same. We need a Savior. We thank you that Christ is that for us. I pray that he would be that for every person in this room today. That what happened at Sychar might happen at Bethel. That many would believe. So we pray to that end. In the glorious and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.